How's, how's the volume? Is that okay in back? It's actually pretty quiet in here. Have you noticed? Sometimes, um, sometimes it's hard to tell when you're in the middle of a retreat. Like even how's it going? It's not not so clear. Um, and because in some ways we come in and out of the space because we're talking and working and planning and relating to this, the staff and Spirit Rock. And then we come in here and it's like, oh, we can, we can feel the difference. And one of the things we noted also talking to you in the interviews and then talking among ourselves that no matter what's happening, no matter what difficulties may be happening for you, it doesn't even matter what doubts you may be happening, everybody keeps kind of dropping. And it may not feel that way from the inside, but from when we're, from our view, we can kind of feel this steady movement of quiet, of composure, of a sense of collectedness. And it's really the path of samadhi. It's how samadhi works. It almost works in spite of us sometimes, or in spite of what we think should be happening. What I'd like to talk about tonight is the path of samadhi, a little bit, a little bit um, include what where we've been, and then see about going forward also. And the path begins at a very uh, usual place for Buddhist teaching, which is mindfulness of breathing. And that's all we've been doing, is practicing mindfulness of breathing. And it's highlighted a number of times in the text as one of the main meditation uh, practices. Stands on its own, Anapanasati. There's a whole sutta devoted to it. And then, of course, it's the first uh, uh, body meditation, mindfulness and breathing. And in the Anapanasati Sutta, Mindfulness of the In and Out Breath, it begins the first two um, guidelines about how to practice are how to be mindful of the breathing. And so even now you can notice, is your breath long or short? Like what, what kind of breath is happening right now? And can you just be with that, long or short? 
And by implication, is it rough or smooth? Is it open or closed? Is it relaxed or tight? It's about being mindful of the way the breath is. And what we're being taught here in the mindfulness of breathing is how to be present with, how to be mindful of something. The breath is teaching us to be mindful of it. We're learning how to be mindful by being aware of the breath, the duration, the kind of breath it is. And, and that's what we begin with here. Just We sit down, we say, okay, pay attention, be mindful of your breath. You know, maybe a little posture, which is also part of the body, and then pay attention to the breath. <clears throat> then Anapanasati switches from mindfulness of the breathing to mindfulness with breathing. And it's... It's a subtle or maybe not so subtle uh, skillful means. So first we're learning how to be mindful by paying attention to the breathing. Then we start to use the breath in the service of deepening mindfulness, in the service of deepening concentration, in the service of deepening our presence and our capacity to be present with all of our experience. So mindfulness with breathing switches us not just to being aware of the breath, but utilizing the breath really as an ally, as a friend. And so working with pain, the wise use of pain in in practice is also the wise use of the breathing. So we, we started to talk more directly this morning about physical pain. We can also include emotional pain. When you're having pain or distress or it's unpleasant or it's uncomfortable, breathe with it. Start to see what happens as you direct the breathing and you have full permission to direct the breathing. If, the, if there's a pain in the shoulder, breathe into the shoulder. It's a, it's a little bit of a win-win situation. It will help relax you. It will also help you stay present. The breath will be an ally here to stay present even when there's some pain. And, wow, and and you'll stay with the breathing. So you're keeping this through line that we want to pay attention to when we're doing samadhi as a path. And you've noticed, even though we didn't talk about pain much, you were probably having some anyways. Is that, am I correct here? Right? It just happens, even without us having to talk about it. Um, part of the path of samadhi is not so different from the path of mindfulness. We want to work with what's here. 
we want to work with what's true. We, you, we can't, it doesn't, the Dharma doesn't work, whether it's, you know, samadhi or some other doorway. The Dharma works with the truth. And in the, as it said in the Western tradition, the truth will set us free. It's the same in the Dharma. So even though we're stressing, staying with the breathing, being with the breathing, becoming one with the breath, feeling your breath, being concentrated, that's not going to happen every sitting. Is that clear by now? <laughs> Actually, there's going to be a whole terrain of reality that we need to work with, and we want to work with it skillfully. Mindfulness with breathing is one of the primary skillful ways to work with the ups and downs of a day of mind of meditation. And so, and so um, to practice samadhi, we also have to be honest about where are we? What's happening for us now? Including the times when we're unconcentrated and how to work with that. Can we breathe with the pain in the shoulder? Can we breathe with the pain in the knee when it's strong? Can we breathe when there's grief here? or fear, or irritation, or anger? Or can we breathe with being unconcentrated? And then our pain, our distress, what's uncomfortable, unpleasurable, is simply part of the practice. You're not doing it wrong. In fact, it's it's very hard to do this practice wrong. Maybe impossible. Kind of as long as you don't leave. <laughs> Has everybody seen that you can't force the samadhi? Right? You can try and force it. You know, and that'll be a certain kind of dukkha. Right? But to really, to start to develop the art of practice means to ride the waves, both the waves of what's pleasant and what's good and what's deepening, but also the waves of what's difficult, what's hard, what's frustrating. And then we're riding the bigger wave, which goes up and down. So we want to work with what's difficult skillfully and this is where, and it's very inclusive then to say, breathe with it, simply breathe with it. And you can, you can breathe with it, you can direct the breath. If you're in pain in the heart, direct the breath to the pain in the heart. Breathe with it. You don't have to get rid of the pain in the heart. That's not the practice. The practice is to center, to begin to center ourselves with what's here and by centering ourselves with what's here, the samadhi builds. And then as it gets more pleasant, then we work with the wise use of pleasure. The last thing to say about pain that's very important, and it's just contextual, is um, one of the ways 
this path is talked about is the path of purification. The path of purification. And it's, it's, an, it's an important context because it's not just supposed to be, oh, it's all good, it's all good, it gets better, it gets better, it gets better. I mean, that would be nice. I'm, I'm not really against that if it would go that way. That would be great. I'm, I'm all for that. But the reason it doesn't is because there's still things that are, we would say in psychological terms, unconscious or unknown or unexamined or hidden or we would, in, in more Buddhist terms, we would talk about the kalesas or the defilements or karma. It's not whatever words you want to use. But part of the practice, as we get settled and as we get centered, as we start to focus on the breath and use that, it, it will actually bring up, as we settle, then the next level of kalesa comes up or the next level of what it maybe was unconscious starts to come to the surface. It begins to shine a light, and that comes forward, and it's supposed to come forward. That, that is how the Dharma works. There's a, 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 a phrase or a little saying that I like from the Zen tradition where they say, sentient beings are deluded about enlightenment. Buddhas are enlightened about delusion, right? Sentient beings have a lot of ideas about what enlightenment is. Oh, it's going to be like this, and I'll, I'll be walking two or three feet above the ground, and everybody will see how enlightened I am. A lot of ideas. Buddhas don't care about that. Buddhas are interested in understanding delusion, and they keep paying attention to delusion until it self-liberates. And so we want, the delu we want to see our own delusion. And we will if we pay attention. Now, so there's the area of what's unpleasant. There's the area of what's pleasant here. Work it when things calm down, when we start to get even a little bit concentrated, it's can be pleasant. It's, it's actually really nice. We generally like it a lot. It feels nourishing. It feels good. It feels good to the heart, good to the body, good to the mind generally, good to the soul. And as we as we start to get settled, it'll be it'll it can feel pleasant, it can feel nourishing. It can feel enjoyable, it can feel satisfying, it can feel sweet or delicious, it can feel sensual. When that happens, include that in the body and the breathing. When you notice that, oh, I like this, you don't have to not like this. There's a Buddhist misunderstanding here often, like, oh, I shouldn't like this because then I'll get attached. So don't tell too many people I said this, but get attached. It's okay. It's, it's fine to get attached here. It's fine to actually see how long you can stay with the breath, stay present, stay very intimate, stay with the pleasure, let the pleasure build. See how big it gets. 
See how sweet it gets. See how delicious it might get. Push your edge here a little bit. How's that for instructions today? The, the theory is the pl when it's pleasant, when it's pleasurable, if we, if we kind of follow it and go with it and see if we can let it build, it will draw us in further, deeper, more intimately to the meditation itself. It's a skillful means. It's the skillful use of pleasure, of the pleasant. And, and, the, and there's a, a bigger context, which I'll say later, which is one of the things that happens really when the samadhi gets stronger is that the pleasure of it can get very strong and what it does, it begins to, it, 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 without even you having to do anything, it begins to loosen the grip we have on worldly pleasures. Because actually the pleasure of our own being is more pleasurable than any worldly pleasure. Just the pleasure of our own being here. There's something, there's something here that's innate, that is so pleasurable and so good, and we're so happy when we, we touch it, when we know it, when we feel it. And people go, oh yeah, this is good. This is really good. And it's why we might get attached at a certain point, that's true. But part of the movement here, and part of the skillfulness in terms of the Dharma, is we start to see there's something good here, and there's something sweet here, and there's something delicious here, that's not based on worldly pleasure. It's not based on getting things or having things or keeping things or owning things or becoming somebody or not be, you know. It's like, oh no, here, my, our own being, there's this pleasure available to us. The Buddha said, John is called the pleasure of renunciation, the pleasure of seclusion, the pleasure of peace, the pleasure of self-awakening. I say this kind of pleasure, wait, wait, I want to use a different version here. And this kind of pleasure, I say, that in this, of this pleasure, I say, that it is to be cultivated, it is to be developed, it is to be pursued, and that it is not to be feared. This is a Buddha talking about the pleasure of our own being. And being, learning how to be with ourselves, this simple, living, breathing body. And the, the beauty of it, the goodness of it, and the skillfulness of it. And in this way, as we learn to work with both the ups, which will come, and the downs, it's like, you know, in bike riding, there's, certain, there's a certain... Um, uh, kind of riding, like you can do mountain riding and you can do ride on the flats. There's certain, like along the coast, they call them the rollers. And they're like this. They're kind of even. They go up, but then they go down. And then they go up and go down. And the downs are really fun. And then you have to work a little harder on the up. But you never get to the downs if you don't go up also, if you don't do the work. And so both, they're both needed to enjoy that kind of riding. And to really appreciate the meditative process partly means we start to appreciate 
the ups and downs. Oh, that is the way it works. Nothing just opens and opens and opens. The flowers open and close, they open and close. There's birth and death, birth and death. That's the reality. And we start to see, when we're seeing from wisdom, we see, okay, everything works like that, actually. One of the qualities that Sally listed up there, and that we've talked about a number of times here, all of us, is simplicity. Is how simple it might be to do this practice. And that, that actually may be what's difficult about it. We, we're used to more complexity. We want something we can really dig our teeth into or figure out how to do this. And we're actually not used to the simplicity of being. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh. And he's talking about how he talks about meditation, mindfulness, is observing the body in the body observing observation meditation. He says the key to observation meditation is that the subject of the object of the observation and the object of the observation not be regarded as two separate things. He's saying the key to observation meditation is that the subject of of the object and the object of the observation not be regarded as two separate things. A scientist might try to separate him or herself from the object he or she is observing and measuring, but students of meditation have to remove the boundary between subject and object. We actually do, do the opposite. When we observe something, we are that thing. Non-duality is the key term here. That our movement towards being with the breath is actually very simple. Let me guide you for a second, just to hopefully give you a little taste. And you can sit anyway. You don't have to sit formally. Sit relaxed. Just shut your eyes and feel your body for a minute. Let's just feel your body sitting here for a second. Very simple. And actually, just to notice that, all, that to feel your body means to be aware of your body, right? You're being aware of it by... Feeling it and the awareness and the body are both right here. You don't have to do much or you don't have to go get the awareness or go get the body. You just feel the body and you know it. And you'll notice if you just feel the body and awareness is sensitive to it, you're breathing. You don't have to do the breathing. You don't have to make the breathing happen. Just awareness is here. You feel the body, the body's breathing. That's the whole meditation practice. Feel your body, body's breathing. Doesn't matter, maybe, maybe you're noticing the breath at the nose or chest or belly, it's all part of the body. It's very simple. And it's a little like a lake. So you have a body of water, and it's blue. 
and um, it's wet and it's sparkly from the sun. It's just, we can discriminate the different parts, but it's just all there. It's all right there. So we're discriminating, oh, there's some awareness and there's the body and there's some breathing, but it's actually all already here. We're not used to that level of simplicity, of the bareness of our direct experience. We're filtering through ideas and beliefs and imaginings and past experience and what we think should happen. And here we just want to come down to the simple experience, body, sitting, breathing. And then, of course, include whatever else might come. And especially if you're quiet, if you're with the body, you're with the breathing, you're feeling it, maybe you'll notice the sound, there's a white noise in the ear, can get very loud sometimes. These things are not a problem. These are part of the practice. So you can let that mingle in, in the water in the water of the awareness and the body and the breath and then the sound. And personally, I've had these experiences where I'll be pretty centered with the breath and the body, quiet, and the sound gets loud. And I just, you just let them mingle. And it's almost like the breathing and the sound are become the same frequency or the same texture. It's really kind of odd. And it allows the meditation to deepen. And it's a little bit what I'm describing as the nimitta, one of the forms of nimitta that Richard was talking about last night. Or maybe there's something else we'll get, and, and what you'll notice is it'll be subtle, there'll be a light, or there'll be, maybe there'll be, um, for me, I have um, phantom physical feelings. Now that sounds kind of Exotic, doesn't it? <laughs> wow, phantom physical. All it means is I'll be sitting and there's the breath and, and then there's like this very subtle sense for me as actually a sense of, the, of a kind of phantom breath. And it's kind of, it's, or like the breath has a shadow to it somehow. And I'll just start to pay attention to, I'll include the shadow. And that can help deepen the... So... So similar to working with the pain where we're breathing with things, it's, it's also true when things get quieter, we want to breathe with them. We want to keep breathing with them and include them relaxed, easy, feeling the body, breath. And then anything that's subtle also. In the interviews today, some people, a lot of this talk got organized because of what I heard in the interviews today. And some people were talking about um, really wanting samadhi. Really, I want, you know, I want it and then it goes away. Does anybody have that experience? Anybody? Okay, so this is a good area that to, to, to contemplate because this is a rich area. Because like the Buddha said, right? What, what did I read before? It's like... You know, this pleasure, you know, should be cultivated, developed, pursued, and not to be feared. 
So you can really want this. You can want samadhi. The question is, how do we get it? And the paradox is, we can't get it by grasping after it. And this is a really good paradox. It's a very Buddhist paradox, right? I want this. I do. I want it. I want to get centered. I want to get quiet. I want some of that bliss they're talking about. Give me some of that good old bliss. And I, oh, I'm getting it. I'm getting it. I want more. You know. So, so the Dharma, the path of samadhi, asks us to learn how to get something not by grasping at it. So first of all, how to begin, how to center ourselves, how to work with the breath, how to start to get concentrated. And then when, when it gets good, how to deepen it and want it to deepen, but paradoxically let go of wanting it to deepen. This is definitely, in, we're moving into the Zen tradition here. But it's really true. That's what we need to learn. How do I stay with the breathing and let go of wanting it to deepen, even though, truth is, I want it to deepen? <laughs> I'm getting to the point in the talk and realizing, oh, I don't have a good answer for this. <laughs> I, I know how to do it, but I don't know if I know how to say how to do it. Okay, I do know. I know a little bit. Here's what I know. I do know that it is, so the path of samadhi is also a path of letting go. And so it does mean letting go of our desire. Even though we acknowledge it and it's true, there is a way we have to let go of it. At the same time, we are pursuing it. And it's a paradox. The way, one of the ways I know to let go is to orient to the breathing, not in terms of striving, but in terms of, and I said this earlier, devotion. So one way I've thought about it at times is making the breath the beloved. And if you make the, and this doesn't work for everybody, but it works for some people, this, this idea of the beloved. If you make the breath the beloved, then your orientation is devotion, is surrender, is giving oneself to the breathing rather than what I'm going to get. And it's really cultivating the heart's love of Dharma in the service of the path of samadhi. And so we begin to give ourselves. You know, we want to court the breath. We want to do whatever the breath needs to do, needs us to do, to stay present. Just like we would with a lover that we really cared about. Well, you know, we have no pride. We'll do whatever they want, you know, just so we can be around them. Like that kind of attitude towards the breath. You know, and you long for the breath when you're not there with it, or you miss it. And you're only happy, really, when you're with the breath. And you'll be a little grieving when you can't find it, but all you want to do is get back. It's, it's a little Rumi-esque, if you like Rumi. <laughs> and I know when, when I was practicing in this way, there was a phrase, a Dharma phrase that came to me. It was from a sutta from Bahia. I'm not going to go into the whole sutta, but it's a beautiful sutta about somebody really 
wanting to awaken and he goes and he pursues it and he there's this phrase where he says teach me dharma sugata teach me dharma sugata and that would be what would come in my heart a little bit oh teach me dharma teach me through this breath and that and so you can hear the intention shifts it's not just oh i want to get concentrated no i want the whole dharma and i'll do anything that's needed to be with the breath so it can teach me the dharma And play with it. Find your way. Find your way. What is the breath asking of you in order so that it will reveal itself to you? Its dharma will be revealed to you. Now, as we move in this direction, and, as, and of course, as it deepens, that connection gets stronger. It's like, oh no, you think it's good now? It gets better. And when it gets better, it's like, oh, I want that. I mean, really, oh, I want more. And it's okay to want that. It's okay to want it. So I'm going to say a little bit about jhana. And I'm going to say a little bit about it a um, few, few reasons. One is just to seed it. You know, we've talked about it a little bit, but also to clarify a little more about jhana but also just to let it be seated in the room. I don't know if people get into jhana or not. It's not so important. It's not like, oh, you're trying to get into jhana. No, you're trying to be more with the breath so it can show you what it has, what, what, what riches it can bring, what rich dharma it can reveal. And Sally talked about the dharmic, the, the jhana factors, right? aiming or applied thought, sustaining or sustained thought in the second factor. The third factor is pity, which is rapture, pleasure, sometimes fullness, rapt attention, interest. Rapture sometimes means fascinated by or seized or taken with. And that's, that's again, that's part of the uh, beloved quality of the breath. When when it gets us, that's how we feel. We're a little bit seized by it or rap, raptured by it. And then sukha, happiness, sometimes talked about as joy or pleasure, contentment. And then the fifth is a gakata, which is characterized by one-pointedness or singleness of preoccupation. Singleness of preoccupation. And as we said, they, they begin to... Um, override the hindrances and as the hindrances fade we come into a quality of concentration that's termed neighborhood or access concentration and that's that alone that's a lovely state and a very powerful uh, level of concentration and it's called neighborhood because you're in the neighborhood of jhana or you could have access to jhana, or you're in the neighborhood of insight, and you could have access to insight, especially in the Mahasi tradition, which we teach a lot here. That's, he's happy with that. If you get access concentration, that's what you, all you need for insight in the Mahasi system. So it's a good thing. Here, we, we're in the neighborhood of jhana when we get to access concentration. So when you notice the hindrances are in abeyance, 
and you feel kind of centered and concentrated, that's excess concentration. You're in the neighborhood. And you know, it's a nice neighborhood. It's a good neighborhood to hang out in. Maybe you haven't found the house where you're going, but it's still a nice neighborhood, nice houses, nice trees. And then jhana is characterized by absorption, by, again, another layer, another level, or a deepening of the concentration. Meditative absorption, mental absorption. And it's nice just to hear the synonyms for absorption. Concentration, immersion, fascination, interest, involvement in, immersion in wrappedness in, engrossment within, occupation with, or preoccupation with, or engagement with, or captivation with, enthrallment with. And so it's a little bit why the lover metaphor works so well, because that's part of the movement of the path of samadhi, that it draws us in, and we become fascinated, and and, and really uh, uh, immersed in it. We begin to soak in it or seep into it, or it begins to soak or seep into us. And in the Buddhist tradition, there are eight jhanas that are talked about, what are called the four form jhanas, which are related to the body, and then the four formless body, uh, jhanas, which are uh, less related, not related to the body, less form, formless. And um, when I'm not going to, I'm not much going to talk about those at all particularly, but more um, the level of jhana we're a little more interested in here is the first four jhanas. This level, the first level, which is characterized by applied and sustained thought, and then the, well, here, I'll read you a little bit right from the text. So, one remains uh, uh, secluded, one enters and remains in first jhana, rapture and pleasure, born from withdrawal, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation, or aimed and, and uh, sustained thought. So there's some rapture, there's some pleasure, there's still a certain kind of thinking I think of this thinking as kind of self-guiding that happens, applied, and we're thinking about, oh, let's oh, feel, it, feel it a little more now, stay with it a little longer. It's very quiet, I'm, it's much louder as I'm saying it, but really in the mind, it's just a very quiet guiding. Remember that first image of the bathman's apprentice or bathwoman's apprentice taking the soap and the water? It's, it's really... Uh, supporting ourselves or guiding ourselves to keep including what's happening, staying with it, feeling it. Oh, it's like this now, feel that. Let's stay with it, keep going. Kind of self-teaching, self-guiding that happens. And then the second jhana, the directed thought and evaluation relaxes. And one enters, she enters, and remains in the second jhana, rapture and pleasure born of composure, unification of awareness, free from directed thought and evaluation, internal assurance. And this was really related to that second metaphor that uh, Richard mentioned last night about the, the spring that is, is um, uh, infused from itself, from below. 
just like a lake with the spring water welling up within. We start to find our own ground and the momentum is within now, it's happening. And we're staying with it. And then as the rapture starts to fade or relax or ease, the third jhana starts to reveal itself. One remains in equanimity. Um, no, wait. One remains in uh, equanimity, mindful, alert, physically sensitive to pleasure. One enters and remains in third jhana equanimous and mindful. One has a pleasurable abiding. And, and um, so you, you hear certain qualities in each jhana, certain qualities will fade away and other qualities start to blossom a little more, become a little fuller. Uh, and then with fourth jhana, they say, um, uh, then with the abandoning of pleasure and pain, like that starts to relax that whole that whole sense of even pleasure and pain has relaxed. And as with the earlier jhanas, the disappearance of elation and of distress. So you hear the kind of balance that starts to happen as we move into the fourth jhana. That one enters and remains in fourth jhana, purity of equanimity and mindfulness, neither pleasure nor pain. And one remains there. And this is with that bright, relaxed, open, equanimous awareness. And it's beautiful to taste that when that happens. Now, when the Buddha taught, when the Buddha practiced, he practiced jhana. Uh, as Richard said, I believe, or, or maybe Sally, I can't remember, that his first teachers taught him jhana. And then he practiced jhana on the night of his enlightenment. And then after his enlightenment, he would sit down and practice jhana if he wanted to relax. It's like, okay, what's on TV tonight? Nothing good. I'll just go into fourth jhana. <laughs> and, you know, he kind of, he was skilled in that way. And it is a skill. This is one of the beautiful things. It's a skill we can learn. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes a certain devotion and commitment and steadfastness with the practice, but it's actually a skill. And, it, and everybody has the capacity. And when he taught, he would tell his students, go do jhana. Um, and I think Richard mentioned there's two different ways that jhanas are talked about. They're talked about in the suttas, in the stories about the Buddha and then in the commentaries. And the key, what's important here is the sutta jhanas, the jhanas the Buddha taught, that even when we just get quiet, when the hindrances are in abeyance, we're in that neighborhood. It's, it's not far away. Where we're headed is not far away. People tend to think of them as very exotic or very far. They're not so far away. We might not have found the way in yet, we might not have the key to the door, but we're close to the house. The key maybe takes a little bit of finessing. You know, it's an old house, and we have to get the key just right, especially at first. But actually, we're, if we're in the neighborhood, we're not far away. At least as it's understood in the suttas. It said the suttas seem to indicate that they were just part of the monastic training program. 
Thus, they were not a big deal and they were accessible to many. So that's important to hear. They're really not so far away. The Vasugi Vasudimaga, the commentaries seem to posit a more exotic uh, um, jhana. And people do do these, but it's they're harder to get to, or they're rare, and they're much more secluded. The Buddha's jhanas are are user friendly. Uh, this is important. It's important because what I mean by that is they're just the path of samadhi is just not about getting to samadhi. The path of samadhi is about awakening, and the jhanas are in the service of that awakening. In the Vasudhimaga, the jhanas are so secluded, meaning so cut off, that there's no awareness, or no, the, the awareness is so limited that you can't use them for insight. In the Buddha's teaching, we want to get to, we want to be concentrated in the service of awakening, of clear seeing, of seeing the way things are. And for that, we want a concentrated mind, which which, remember the quote I used the other night, he talked about his mind was concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady. This is, that's what, the kind of mind that we want to turn towards insight. Partly because then the insights we have, the more constant, this is an interesting, this is Eugene's idea here, but I like this idea. <laughs> so my idea is this, the more concentrated we are, the more our mind has been clarified in that way. When there is insight, the insight goes deeper. The insight sticks. The insight, you know, it's not coming through a haze. Boom. The insight is powerful. Because we have insight on many levels. The more centered we are, the more meaningful the insight will be, the more we will metabolize, digest, the insight, so it, it's not just, oh, we have an insight. That insight becomes part of us and transforms our, our understanding. It transforms our very being. That's why I believe the deeper level of concentration is very helpful, skillful. In the Vasudhimaga, it says, of, it's so secluded, it says, of those who undertake the meditation path, only one in a hundred thousand million at best can reach absorption. <laughs> so if you're that one, come and talk to us, even if it's not your interview time, okay? <laughs> we want to know. <laughs> so, and, and, one thing that all the systems, and there's a lot of different systems and ways the jhanas are understood, and a little bit, you'll hear it a little different from all of us because we all have practiced with different teachers, and so we have slightly different experiences. They're all true, they all work, but all the systems agree that when you actually hit jhana, it's of a diff slightly different order. It's hard not to know, oh, like, you know, sometimes people say, oh, is this jhana, is this jhana, is this? It's kind of like, oh, you know. You don't know when you don't know. But when it happens, okay, that's, that's interesting. 
you know, and like I said, my, uh, uh, my teacher didn't, wasn't giving me a lot of instruction. He just kept saying, stay with the breath, stay with the breath. And um, it was a very interesting experience to, first of all, not know how to do it, struggle with it, try things, learn. And this is the path of samadhi also that we're creating a certain internal assurance, internal strength, by putting it back on you. You're going to learn how to do it, of course, because nobody else can do it for you anyways. And we want to support you. We're going to do a little more, right, than say, stay with the breath. But just be starting where you are, being with your art, learning how to navigate the terrain, will begin to take you deeper. And as the jhanic factors grow, and you can start to begin to recognize, oh, I'm a little more concentrated, there's a little more, there's a little more uh, pity here, a little more fullness of the breath and the body and the feeling and the consciousness, and, and there's, oh, there's some joy here, and oh, there's some equanimity, even though, you know, somebody's sneezing or coughing or laughing or whatever they're doing you can start to notice the jhanic factors. And then there's ways that at times where you can even encourage the jhanic factors. May they get a little bigger, and we'll speak to that a little bit. Um, um, but this is the path, is starting to learn how to, we're developing patience. You have to be kind to yourself, it just won't work otherwise. You have to be kind, you have to be patient. You have to be mindful to see what's happening. You have to be discerning. You have to start to use your skillfulness. Now, it's not just, it's not just an abstract discernment and wisdom. You're using your wisdom to experiment and try things and know for yourself so you're developing your mastery. And as you do this, you get better at it, like any, anything you do, whether it's learning how to sharpen a knife or ride a bike or play the flute. Or, or study a certain, you know, discipline, history, or mathematics. And then things can start to unfold. And for myself, I, you know, I struggled and things got better and better. And then, I, like I told you in the last time, I said things got very rich and really, I got really blissful and I told him, you know, this is great, I don't care about John. I'm fine, you know, just eating is great. It's like, oh my God, the breathing, the eating, and the, you know, I was having a good time, and, and you know, and he paused, and then he said, stay with the breath, all that. And, uh, and then I went into the hall after that conversation with him, and I was sitting, I know, right where I was sitting, you know, it's like, and, and it was like, and the, the concentration was there, and it's building, building, and I'm going with it. It's very pleasurable, very pleasurable. And then it, it was like building and filling out and getting richer and filling out. And, and I want to be careful here. It doesn't happen the same for any two people exactly. This is very important to know. This is how it happened for me. I'm not saying it's going to happen for you like this. So I built, 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 and then it was like, it was like fruit. It was like fruit ripening. It got riper and riper, kind of juicier and juicier. My state of consciousness and the breath and the body all at once. And then it like just went And it was like fruit dropping. And it was like, 
okay, this is jhana. And it was, and it was like, it wasn't just, oh, that it dropped. It was like, no, it dropped and my mind stayed. And it was a different order of presence or concentration. I, you know, and, and may have been, still there was some, some applied and sustained thought to, to keep myself there, right? But actually it was like, one of the striking things was, oh, my mind just started to stay. And it was steady in a way that I wasn't used to. Again, of slightly different order. And um, a kind of stability, a consistency to be with the experience, in the experience, as the experience. And then, you know, and then it, you know, it was it stayed for however long it stayed that time. And it was like, I was happy. I was like, cool, this is cool. Oh, it works. You know, that's one of the things. And the faith gets very strong. And, it, and it's like, okay, I'm going to come in and do it again. And, you know, and then it was struggle, struggle. But then learning how to not force it. Learning how to not grasp. But do what I know. Do the skillful things I know. And then again... And then I thought, okay, cool, now I got it. And then it went away, and you know. It did. But, but it started to become more consistent. And this is part of the practice, the path of samadhi, is to begin to stabilize with a certain state of mind. And, um, and, and so the stabilizing is, again, teaching us skills, building certain muscles so we can stabilize. And having us, we're evaluating, we're seeing what works, what doesn't work. You know, and then what? And then also, it's like, what is it like to see from that state of mind? So, um, uh, and you know, and then and then you start playing with the other jhanas. And the, at least for me, I wasn't so much trying to get the other jhana. I was just trying to stay with that first jhana, first jhana, and it started to build, and it started to get rich. And it started to get full and ripe. And I could feel the ripening, ripening. And to be honest, it's a little bit... I thought my experience of jhana, at least at that time, because it's changed a lot over... It doesn't stay... It's not a fixed thing. It's alive, jhana. But at that point, it was very sensual. It felt like a certain kind of sublime orgasm at that time. For better or for worse. Actually, I thought it was for better, to be honest. But, <laughs> but I, I feel a little shy about it on the tape. I'm like, all of a sudden, where I'm being taped, and <laughs> anyhow. So and so the and so then it's like it builds, 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 and then again it drops. Only the it, from first John to the second, it it doesn't drop down. It drops up, and by that I mean. What happens is the dropping is into a more refined state of consciousness. It's not a thicker state or a deeper state. It's actually there's less there, just like they say. Oh, like all of a sudden the applied thought and sustained thought is gone, and there's just the rapture. It's a more refined state. And then the third jhana is very similar. It's like, oh, there's less there, and it's even more refined. And by the time I got, it's like, so it goes to a higher pitch, or more clarified, more beautiful, really. By the time I got to fourth jhana, which was very refined, felt very refined and full and 
pleasurable, but compa- I called Tanisara Pickle. <laughs> I said, I said, do I have to go back to those yucky first jhanas? Because <laughs> that's all of a sudden the first jhana feels kind of gross. And, and then there's and then those immaterial or the or the formless jhanas are even more refined, get more and more refined. Um, so I don't have much longer to talk. I've got only a three more pages, but it's usually about twenty minutes. Um, let's see, where should we go? So um, now again, there's two two pieces I want to get in here. The key to all of this is to stay with the breath. That simple body, breathing, you, you don't have to do much. There's really not a lot of pushing or fixing or forcing. That actually doesn't work. Feel your body, feel your breath. Your, your awareness is here, it's all already here. It's aligning with what's here and letting that take us deeper. That'll, that's what will take us deeper. And of course, aligning with what's here means working with the pain and the pleasure when either one are here. And not thinking one is wrong. It's all part of that bigger process. Um, um, but to stay with the breath, in this way, you have to give up everything else. You have to let go of your thoughts, your beliefs, your ideas, your imaginings, your wantings, your not wantings. You have to let go. And you just use the breath as, as a, a skillful means for letting go. Then the other piece that's really important that I want to say There's be a couple more. Definitely, one of the skillful means is holding things lightly. So even if you feel like you hit jhana at some point, and this is true, and this is what uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu taught me, and I found so helpful. He said, hold it lightly. He didn't really, he didn't make a big deal out of it at all. He said, hold it lightly. If you think it's first jhana, put a post-it note on it, call it first jhana, and then we'll see. And then we'll see. You work with it, work with the state, see what's stable, see what's not, see what changes, see what doesn't, see how it goes. And maybe you'll change. Maybe, maybe you'll see, oh, that's not first jhana. Maybe that was second jhana, actually, which can happen. You can pop right into second jhana. That's possible. At one point, I thought I was in fifth jhana. And I was fifth jhana, which is one of the formless ones, the base of infinite space. And I called my I said, oh, I think this is fifth jhana. And, then, and for a few days, I thought it was fifth jhana. And then something else happened. I'm like, I called him. I said, wait a second. I, this is, I think this is fifth jhana. I think I was in four and a half for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, you know, and, that, and that's the way to hold it. It's really, it's play. You're playing in a, in a, in a heaven realm, really. And, but in a dharma realm. And it's serious play. It's serious because it can lead to awakening. And the way it goes to awakening, as the pleasure of concentration allows us to let go of worldly pleasure and really see, oh, there's something much more rich that's right here in our own being. And as we start to get some skill in the, in the depth of the concentration, 
one of the things we want to look at as we're in first jhana or second jhana is where's the dukkha? Samadhi is dukkha. Jhana, everybody know dukkha? Anybody not know the word dukkha? Everybody knows dukkha here, right? This is a dukkha crowd. We're at the dukkha cafe here doing our little party. Uh, jhana is dukkha, right? You have to keep breathing. <laughs> you have to keep paying attention. You have to do something. Even that slight level of doing something has a quality of stress or strain or unsatisfactoriness at times or whatever it might be. There's a quality. Each level of refinement also has a level of dukkha to it. And so, as you even, and you want, and, and Tan, Tanisero, oh, um, Tanisero was very clear, oh, you want to take your time, stabilize, learn how to go in and out, until you start to get tired of them. I called him up after a month, I, it was near the end of my retreat, I said, I'm not tired of these at all yet. <laughs> he said, no rush, no rush. But, but I was, you know, I did have that perception of the first jhana as opposed to the fourth. I'm like, that's gross. Who needs that? That's just dukkha. Let's go to the fourth. But even the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the, the fourth is infinite, the fifth is infinite space, the sixth is uh, uh, infinite consciousness. I mean, these are refined states. The, the uh, seventh is uh, uh, the base of nothingness. The eighth is neither perception nor non-perception. I mean, we're getting really refined here, really refined, neither perception. And you can experience those. And then those become unsatisfactory. And you're at a beautiful point there. You're at a beautiful point because you've already seen worldly pleasure doesn't quite do it. And now meditative pleasure doesn't do it either. Now you're stuck. You can't go back. You know the 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 new computer is just not going to do it. You know the fourth jhanas, fifth jhana, they they don't do it in and of themselves. So now the mind, the heart, turns very fully, very completely, in that concentrated way, towards freedom, towards the deathless towards the Absolute. And then when that mind that's purified, that's bright, that's malleable and wieldy, when that turned towards freedom, it's very powerful. Let's stop here. Let's sit for a minute, please. <clears throat> 